Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to our series of webinars with Success Chain. Uh, this, I believe, is the third of the lot. Uh, Sue, Jason, welcome once again. And, Thank uh, you. Thank uh, you, Chris. Pleasure to have you. Uh, the topic for today's webinar is uh, how to reasonably predict product adoption. And uh, I, I know, and for the relevance of the viewers who are joining in, uh, this is an area which I think Success Chain is is very close to, and uh, they work. Uh, you know, a lot of their work orients itself around change management and product adoption. So uh, Sue and Jason are mm -hmm. uh, really experts in this field. So uh, welcome Sue and Jason once again, and you know, let's get this webinar going. Thank you, Prithri. A uh, uh, lot of stuff to discuss, uh, but first of all, uh, let's start off very simply with defining and getting on the same page on what is adoption and uh, why is it important to predict adoption? Maybe yes. we could start with you, Sue, yeah. Oh, thank you. Pressure's on. Okay. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I think the definition of, of user adoption is something which is often confused um, because it's associated obviously with change management. When we're talking about user adoption, we're obviously talking about the adoption of the tool and whether or not your tool is being optimized in terms of usage, et cetera. But I think in order to drive that user adoption, it's not just a question of having training on the tool itself, what is really important is to know what it takes outside of that tool in terms of change management to drive that adoption. And that can be anything from the way you are organized around the tool, probably impacting your current organization around that. What are the processes that you're using around that tool? And there could be processes which are gonna be impacted by the implementation of the tool. What is the data governance around that? And what you need to stop doing that you were doing before in order to make sure that you're optimizing the adoption of your new tool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that that's so true. And, and, and what I found is so many folks out there, you know, for me, it is the user adoption really is give up, getting people to perform their job differently using the technology oh. and following the processes that have been defined around it so that everyone in the organization can benefit from the capabilities of the technology. And, and I think, Part of the reason we talk about this is far too often we find organizations they'll they'll see a really nice, exciting, sexy demo of a new software that's really sweet and, and in a pristine environment with clean data and it's all scripted out and they're like, yes, I want that. And then they get into their organization and it's a mess. And there's you know some people will use it, some people won't. Um, there's competing priorities and competing interests. There's filthy data that makes some of the automations go out of whack. And then organizations are really. Um, disappointed because they expected all these great business benefits and they're going to spend this pile of money to get it in and get it live. And then the return doesn't really happen. And I, I think the, the key piece of without getting that effective user adoption and getting people to use it well and as intended and on a regular basis as part of their job and doing their different their job differently, they will never get the business benefits they anticipated when they made the purchase. And so that's critical for the organizations that are buying it. And then obviously for CS folks, if you can't get your customers to drive adoption in their organization, um, they won't be getting the value. They will not be renewing for long. So it's it's really critical to everyone. And I think it's an area that it um, is really understated and often missed. Right, 
Right, right. So what, again, paraphrasing a little bit of what, what both of you mentioned, I think uh, the reason why it is important to obviously drive adoption and be able to predict it is because uh, adoption has downstream impact on uh, the ultimate business outcomes, which mm-hmm. the tool is expected to you know, provide. Yeah. And right. hence value and hence if it's not there, then there is an issue you're likely to face, which is why it's a good predictive measure of your final business outcome, which you're trying to drive using the tool, right? Right. And I think periphery to that point too, it's the business outcome for both the buyer of the software and the impact on their internal business, but also ultimately for the vendor. Because if obviously if the buyer's not getting the outcomes they want, there will be a, a knock-on effect to renewals and, and expansions for the vendor themselves. So everyone everyone has a stake in driving effective adoption. Correct. 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 Which, which both of you mentioned, and this brings me to my sort of next question for you. Uh, both of you mentioned user adoption. Okay. So uh, one thought I have here is sometimes the adoption piece probably also needs to go beyond the actual users of the platform. So when you say adoption, uh, I may not be using the product I have purchased day to day, but I may still be the buyer who sanctioned yes. the so you still have to you know, get me to adopt it in some way or form may not be in the manner of a day-to-day user, right? So the uh, question for you really is user adoption, stakeholder adoption, champion adoption, different personas having different adoption. What is the difference and you know, how does that impact you know, the predictability of it, if at all? Yeah, I, I think uh, obviously user adoption means that people are actually using the tool, but there will be stakeholders who have some kind of vested financial interest in the usage of the tool, but they're not actually actively using it. And this is where it's really important when we're talking about the change management, that we understand, you know, what are the interests of all the different actors around? So whether it's a sponsor, whether it's the direct manager of the teams, whether it's just somebody who has some kind of financial interest in that, understand their needs and really in the change management, make sure that we're talking about incentives for each of those different stakeholders so that they know what they need to do in order to make sure that they're going to drive that change. Right. Um, And this, this is going to create extra layers of granularity in how you as a vendor are going to communicate and guide the companies that you're working with. So it's not just mono level, let's just talk about the users because they're the immediate people who are tangibly using and putting data into the tool. But there could be very passive people who are never actually putting stuff into the tool, but are actually using it because they're looking at dashboards, for example. The managers are looking at reports. So that's, for me, that is a sign of adoption, even if it's very passive. So we have to understand these different levels of granularity and make sure that each of the different levels, whether it's stakeholder, direct manager, users, champions, whatever you like to call them, that each of them knows what is the interest for them and why they should be using this tool, how it's going to be a game changer for their business. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And as you, you know, predict... At times, it may also be necessary to, you know, sort of look at these different personas or different stakeholders uh, appropriately, 
there may be a phase in 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 the in the customer life cycle wherein you would focus more on a certain category of uh, whether it's user or passive users and there may be another phase wherein you do need to look at all of them together or or one or the other any thoughts around that and have you seen any practical uh, scenarios play out like that yeah I, yes. i think that's very very true i mean as as you mentioned and Sue's discussed too i think initially at some level you've got to really focus on the front end users who are going to be the primary transaction holders of the application to get the data get the things moving but there is that other piece on the back end of who's going to be making better informed decisions and in, or driving more automations with that to change how you do things so i think you know i often take a maturity model approach to this as well too and say right, where do we need to be in the first stage to get that basic user transaction detail and then where do we optimize it down the road either in the forms of increased automation using the auto tools and stuff must be proven that we can use this and, and get our business model down or the uh improved decision making through the analytics and other or other data pieces um but Sue, do you have other other examples around that too yeah i think the other great example is what you were mentioning prith it's about the persona approach because um i think what's really important to today especially now that we have more um intelligence and more technology to help us serve our customers um is to have this persona approach which you can actually build into your tools um so you know we we've seen more and more where companies software companies are building into their tool um like funneling around personas so mm-hmm. instead of saying right go in this is this is our wonderful tool these are all the different features and bells and whistles that you can use uh, try and use 100% of them and that's a really good indication that there's full adoption no you know we say right you're probably a certain kind of user persona with specific needs these are the 20% of the functionality of this tool that you need to use and if you're only using 20% of the functionality of all the tool then that could be a great thing for this particular persona because they don't need all the other bells and whistles so that's up to vendors to really try and slice and dice their in app experience for these different mm-hmm. personas by keeping them focused on what is really essential for their specific needs yeah mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. perfect a uh, little bit on that maturity model uh, which you mentioned uh, is is there you know a, a a better way to actually structure let's say a phase 1 or or better question is how do you structure phase 1 so for example let's say a scenario you have a uh, hundred sort of day to day users you have three four passive sort of contributors and then you have let's say two uh, executive buyers of the of a particular tool right mm-hmm. now now on phase 1 do you take a balanced approach and you know try and drive adoption to all of these personas uh, or do you actually start with numbers and say okay i do have 100 day to day users first let me do that and then how does that play out or is it, is it a horses for courses sort of scenario yeah i've seen a variety of ways to do it and it really depends on the context of the organization you know in in some situations it's been all right we're doing a a really hard transfer from one the old system to the new system we don't have the luxury of doing a phased approach so we have to get everyone on board and there've been other places where i've done phased rollouts because it was it, we were able to do that and it made more sense um my preference is usually for how do we start small and get quick wins and, and learn some basics with people who are motivated and supportive and willing to invest the time to learn and and adjust and then once you get some stability in there um moving it forward very quickly 
Um, one example, when I was working with a large organization, we rolled it out um, a CRM to about five different business units across the globe. And we started with the first one, and it was very hands-on, very difficult uh, for a variety of reasons. And it took us a good you know, four to six months to really get it moving and to get people through the, the learning curve and through the hurdles to, to do that. And to get through, you know, there's always a bit of bitching that goes on for a little bit when you first make the transition and then with enough support and the right actions afterwards to drive adoption, that goes away. And when we started to roll it up to subsequent business units, we were able to go much faster because we had proven results, we had proven um, model of what worked and what didn't, we'd stabilized things a bit more. And for those folks, the uptake and the adoption was much faster. And we learned a lot through, through that. So um, when you have the opportunity for that, I think it's a great approach. When you don't, I think you need to be very intensive and intentional about how you're going to drive that initial adoption and quickly get people moving up and circulate the the value and the wins that you're having along the way so that everyone sees the, the piece. Mm-hmm. Sue, do you have thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is where, especially if you've got a very complicated project um, with, with, with a product which is rather complex, uh, rather than do a big bang operation, I think it's very useful if you've got some kind of project management skills, which you are probably teaching and coaching your stakeholders and, and the managers of the teams who will be using the tool so that they know how to do this in, in a very, even if it's a lengthy rollout, so that you're getting staggered quick wins along the rollout program, you know, um, and never try a big bang operation, especially if you've got um, something which is quite complex, because that's just going to overwhelm everybody. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree that every every um, implementation I've seen that really struggles, they've tried to do too much too fast, where yeah. a phased approach and starting simple and getting people comfortable, um, that's always been much more effective in my experience. Yes. Perfect. Uh, there's some thunderstorms where I am. I don't know whether you can hear it, but... Yes. You did. <laughs> wow, it's very atmospheric. <laughs> yeah. yeah, can't control nature, so but we'll keep going and... It doesn't disrupt us too much. Uh, changing tracks a little bit, I think uh, very valuable what you both mentioned on the process side and on the phase-wise approach side. Uh, what about you know structures and roles? And I know, Sue, you mentioned a little bit incentivizing, and we'll talk about that in more detail. What about structures and roles on both sides, the vendor side as well as on the customer side? And, and how, how do you look at that? One, obviously, to drive adoption, and two, also to be the, to have the ability to you know predict it well yeah i i think um roles on the customer side are really important i think you know in in the world of customer success when we're talking about adoption we're often talking about it from the point of view of the vendor and i think adoption is not a challenge for the vendor of course if if you see that you have low adoption that's a concern mm-hmm. But what we should be doing is educating our customers to understand that adoption is a challenge which they should be looking at and taking ownership for, because it is a prediction of outcomes, performance for them. So we should be educating and and giving them the tools by which to measure their adoption. I've seen so many vendors where the customer is probably adopting the tool fully, but they don't know that. They don't know that because they don't have visibility. They don't have the data. They don't have a dashboard. They don't have reports to see what is their adoption level. So I think the role um, of the customer is is really fundamental. 
But in order for that to take place, we should be facilitating that as a vendor. And that is still something which I think we're not doing enough. Um, yeah. So it should be something that we're building into the tool, or if we don't have it already in the tool, at least to generate reports so they have access to that. So they take ownership for their own adoption, which then becomes a prediction for their own outcomes. Yeah, right. I I agree with that completely. And, you know, half of our business is working with buyers of software to drive change and adoption in their organizations. And one of the first questions I always ask is, who is the senior executive that's um, accountable for making sure the system is used and that it's generating ROI one, three and five years down the road? And most times the buyer, the the company has not assigned anyone like, oh, I get, we don't do that. We probably should. They're always focused on who's going to get the system live on time and on budget. But then they just assume that all the value is going to happen. And if you don't have someone who's going to be accountable, whose job it is to make that happen, who has the authority to, to allocate resources, and frankly, who's going to keep through and, and resolve all those difficult um, cross-department user issues that always come up to make sure that everyone's working collaboratively in the tool, um, you're going to have problems. And, and that's always a big you know, warning sign for me that we're on the road to, to having some trouble with this client because they're just going to fall apart and there's going to be no one there who's, who's going to be keeping an eye on it. Correct. Correct. So that itself is a predictive metric, whether you have a stakeholder at the customer's end who's responsible for driving. If not, you know right from the go that this is likely to face more challenges and adoption yeah. is likely to be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and yes. and uh, do you feel it always needs to be executive management or is it also fine if you have, you know, a mid manager as long as there is very clear cut demarcated responsibility allocated and obviously some empowerment provided for that, uh, we should be fine, right? I I think it depends on how important the tool is and how, how um, ubiquitous it is across the enterprise. So if you're doing a major enterprise-wide application, CRM and ERP, something like that, that really is, you know, big money and a lot of users from different departments, you want to have a very senior executive. And, yep. you know, some, I've been on projects where people are investing $40 million, $100 million in applications. Yep. Um, you should even be reporting adoption out to the board level at that point and being yep. held accountable at that point to say, this yep. is a good investment for us. Um, if you're buying a small tool, you know, like a Canva or something like that, just for use within your department, that's probably overkill. So I think it really depends on where it needs to be. Um, but I also do think that a lot of the adoption issues, um, people often get confused and think, oh, it's about the technology. Well, a, a well-designed technology can help, but this is an organizational and behavioral issue and a performance issue. Um, those often, you know, get messed up and, and get into trouble when you're going across department. And you need someone with, exec with who has that executive clout to work across departments that has the influence and the ability to work in other, you know, to, to sort of bridge some gaps and bring down some silos. And many times the middle folks, they may be able to help do the legwork and they've got a day-to-day -day level operation around that, but they can't resolve the bigger issues. So I think it does need, the higher up, the better, um, given the size of the application. Right, right. Yeah, I think the the input should come top down, you know, with a, with a, a chief or executive sponsor. But I think, you know, from an operational point of view, what is really uh, impactful is the the middle management so so the teams who are actually using the tool they're direct managers so mm -hmm. if, if you can really guide the direct managers you know they're probably not execs probably operation operational managers but mm -hmm. if you can guide them on what it takes in order to incentivize their teams 
for them to know what it what it takes to to understand if within their team of let's say they have a team of 10 people out of the 10 people there are probably seven people who are fully on board two people yep. are completely resistant to adopting this new tool and then probably one person who's kind of sitting on the bench so you have to educate that team manager to understand what to do if you have that kind of configuration of you know team members um, and a lot of a lot of team managers don't know how to do that. They think it's you know it's just a question of okay training. You click this button here. You click this button there. Um, and even if it's a very simple tool, maybe it's a very simple tool like like Canva. You know, in some situations, making that step to leave behind whatever they were using before or not, and going on board with the new tool. You know, it could be something which, in certain people's minds, is a huge step. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. We are getting some questions, uh, uh, some good ones at that, and I'm, I'm guessing some of it may be covered during the course of a conversation. But mm-hmm. we will try and address as many of these uh, latter half of this conversation. Now, uh, uh, one one element of this uh, also is, uh, you know, uh, setting up benchmarks. When you're saying I need to uh, drive adoption and predict adoption so that mm-hmm. I can get out of it. That's the uh, ultimate goal. But but how do you set the benchmark? So one thing, Sue, you mentioned is what I was doing before and now am I doing it differently in the new tool is, you know, really two ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But as you go into people already using it, uh, how do you create a benchmark for your own organization, for your own product? Uh, and is that necessary? And because I, I'm guessing you need to look at the adoption in the context of that benchmark and then use that to predict whether it's below average or above average at a bare minimum, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's difficult sometimes as a starting point because you, you, you know, as a benchmark, you need to have something to begin with and it's not always the case, right? Because they've probably never mm-hmm. done that before. So you have to start somewhere. So it's always good to say, right, so we have a hypothesis uh, that we would like to, you know, if you've invested in um, a customer success platform, for example, mm-hmm. you might say we have a hypothesis that we'd like to see um, so many playbooks used yeah. per month. Yeah. Right. Of course, when you invest in your customer success platform, you don't have that benchmark. You have to start somewhere and yeah. saying reasonably, what, what would I think would be a good benchmark to start yeah. with? You then launch the, the tool and you start measuring and then you can adjust that hypothesis as you go along. Right. I think what is really interesting to do from a vendor point of view is to also create benchmarks based on your customer base. So if you can say, right, um, I have my customers in this vertical or in this geographical region or mm-hmm. in this segment, whatever, and you can create benchmark stats around the usage and the adoption yeah. for those different uh, verticals, personas, regions, whatever it is that you're using to segment, and then actually make that data available to your customers, then that is a great way for your customers to think, oh, you know, we have a similar customer to us who is in the same vertical, and this is what they're doing in terms of adoption. Maybe we're missing out, you know? Right, right. Yeah. I I like that, too, and and I think that's very powerful, especially, you know, here's how long it takes. You know, I think um, looking even at a more macro level, um, when I talk to a lot of organizations, I'll even say, you know, what percent of your current applications are fully used? Or I'll ask them another way. I'll say, you know, when you look across your portfolio of applications you have today, 
um, what percentage of them are 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 okay. you actually using full listen? And you know, one large organization that I worked with, they said, you know, we're probably using about ten percent of the capabilities and functionality that we have. We're probably getting about ten percent of the benefits that we could mm-hmm. across all of our applications. That's sort of their their ten percent. So that so you know, that's a ninety percent wasted value that they have across their IT portfolio. And then when we asked them, okay, you made a business case for how much you're going to invest and what you're going to do with this, didn't you? And just, well, yeah, of course we did. We had to justify the money we we're going to spend. And like, yeah. what level of adoption did you assume? Like, oh, well, we assumed to be 100 adoption. So you know, you use one number to justify the money, and then you're very disappointed when you didn't get the value in the return that you get when you're only driving a 10 adoption. So I think when I start to ask people, oh, did you factor in that you know 50 of your people won't use the system, or the value will come six months later than you thought it would? How does that throw off your business case? Oh, if you did a little bit more to drive adoption now, you would realize those benefits fast, faster and better than you could. You'd still have a positive ROI in your business case, but you just haven't allocated your resources appropriately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that that's a great point as well, because I haven't seen it really done yet, but I think uh, the, the way the industry is evolving, it will be towards that. So we can actually make a correlation with adoption and business outcomes. Right. Yep. Um, at the moment, it's, it's a lot of, um, Hypothesis, there's lots of very much relying on your customer to be transparent with you about the outcomes that they're actually gaining. But I think as we go forward, we'll be able to make that correlation and, and predict and even help the customers to monitor themselves because, they're, they, because they have access to the adoption. What will be their prediction for their future performance? Yeah. yeah well, mm-hmm. I'm you know, nodding my head vigorously because yes. <laughs> very, very close to what we uh, did very recently on a module mm-hmm. called Smart Operations. Uh, yes. There's an intelligence-driven module specifically around predicting certain trends and looking at certain mm-hmm. trends and bubbling it up. Mm-hmm. One of mm-hmm. it actually is adoption intelligence, which okay. uh, you know does a bit of what you said that uh, you know benchmarks your own organization uh, maybe your best customer, or you have had more adoption in a certain vertical, like you mentioned, and then compares yeah. it and says, "Hey, these three customers you didn't have as much uh, as you have in the, you know, as as your benchmark, for example," and then bubbles that up predictively. So that's that's it's 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 getting some good traction. So, but anyway, that's for a later yeah. time. But but yeah, very relevant to you know what yes. uh, you know we are also seeing in the industry. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Quick. Uh, I'll go back a little bit. There is one observation I've had, and during the course of this conversation, to the structure piece a little bit more. Uh, we are talking adoption, and and a, a lot of times I've also seen organizations structure themselves separately into a customer success team, which is responsible for ABC. And I'll get to what mm-hmm. because ABC differs from organization to organization. And yeah. An account management team, which is responsible for you know largely expansion uh, and I have an adoption or advocacy team which just simply drives adoption okay and then I have an onboarding team and an implementation team the standard stuff so we are seeing this play out more and more especially mid-market large enterprises Uh, obviously everyone has a role to play in driving the ultimate goal and the ultimate outcome but if not done well, uh, you know, a lot gets lost in this handover of sorts uh, between mm-hmm. these different siloed functions. Uh, any thoughts around this? Have you seen that also happening? And what's a good way to, you know, bring it all together? Yes. I, I mean, 
I think uh, we are seeing often that companies, unfortunately, are still working in silos. Um, I think that's the, that's the norm rather than the exception, uh, yeah. unfortunately. I, th I think with with the rapid emergence now of what we're seeing in customer success, I think that customer success has jumped onto an opportunity to try to start to break down that siloed way of working. Because I think customer success, because we're in the we're the, the front runners in front of the customers, so we had a lot of knowledge, a lot of data, which yeah. we didn't have before. Yeah. So I think one of the best practices is, you know, the the the, the voice of the customer, the, the feedback loop. Um, so the the customer success managers are actually helping all the other teams, which historically have been siloed up until now, and because they're feeding them with wonderful information. It's yeah. actually meaning that they're actually serving their internal customers with data, which yeah. until now they've been deprived of. So I think that's helping to close the gap between the silos because, you know, if you're, if you're in sales, customer success is feeding you with data around upsells and cross sales. They're probably feeding you with data around, okay, this customer, um, it's, um, it's a candidate for upsell because they have 100% adoption, for example. Yeah. Yeah. They're feeding into the marketing team with success stories, feeding into the product team with roadmap priorities, et cetera. Correct. So I think custom success is becoming a catalyst to break down those silos. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. uh, let's, uh, you know, we will, it's very interesting conversation. I'm sure we can't cover and we're getting a fair bit of mm -hmm. very good questions as well, which we do need to spend some time on. Mm -hmm. uh, let, you know, obviously a, you, you cannot predict what you do not measure. You cannot improve what you do not measure. So we have to take this question on what are the, you know, simplest of matrices to be able to gauge and drive and predict adoption. And what variances have you seen? Uh, but let's address the first things first. What are the most common ways to measure adoption? So I, I think there's a few. Different yes, things. Um, you know, and Sue has done a lot of work on this with with her AMPM methodology. But I think first is the starting with the defining what are those business outcomes that you want to achieve? What are your business goals? And cascade those down throughout the organization. And, and first, you cascade them down to um, like if we want to save, uh, you know, fifty million dollars on travel expenses or something else by using virtual technology. Let's cascade that down to a department by department goal or team by team business goal. And then break that down at, at the frontline levels and say, okay, what does this actually translate into in terms of different trans behavior transactions used in the application? So instead of booking a flight, maybe we'll do a Zoom call. How many Zoom calls by how many people to get to this number? So you can translate this down in some ways to what are the business goals you want to get to. Um, but the other ways that I've seen people do it that, that can be also effective is to say, um, hey, we want to start with simple um, transactions. We're going to start with this module. And in the first week, I want to see people create five records in here. In the second weekend, I want to see people create 10 records and by so on. And then 20 records. And then I want to use it full time within three weeks. And then we're going to start working on adopting the next module. So I think you can come up with a couple of different ways that you want to, to break down those and structure it. Um, but mm -hmm. I think the important thing is having really clear goals having a way to measure and track the progress against those. But then the other thing is who mentioned earlier, you know, the single biggest driver of user adoption is that immediate supervisor. Many times they don't even know it's their job to do this. 
and they don't really, they're not focused on what that looks like or how to know if they're doing a good job or a bad job or if they have a problem or not. And unless you give them that structure and the guidance around that, they're really going to struggle. So you can't really blame them for not doing it when they've never been asked and they don't know how and they don't have what they need to do it. So when you put that in place and you walk through how to do this, um, then it's very easy to move it forward. Yeah. Why I ask this is, uh, sorry, so go ahead. Yeah, no, just, I'm just going to add to that because Jason mentioned it's, it's our methodology, which we use for that, which we, which we call AMPM. So it's activity measurements and performance measurements. And so it's very good to, to start with adoption from the end, from the final result, which is performance, and then work backwards. And the activity measurements, you can actually fine tune that so that you have something very specific based on the different types of persona users and stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So you have AMPN, which yeah. is really tailored according yeah. to each need, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, yeah. and uh, you know, the question I was about to ask is related to that. So, see, everyone and every tool provides the basics of, you know, either a monthly active user or a weekly active user and you know, variations mm-hmm. of that who's logging in and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't really solve for the problem. You know, so mm-hmm. it, 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 it really is, you know, one tick mark in a weekly report, which goes out. Mm-hmm. So I think my learning has been that there are certain softer aspects to who you have sold to. It is contextual. And obviously our learning is dependent on the type of business you are in. A simpler tool may have, you know, a fairly, and this may suffice. But for most part, I think it's important to also uh, see uh, what is it that you are actually wanting to achieve to your performance point soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then tweak that metric and it can be one metric or two metrics. That's fine. Data points, which you then start tracking uh, as a predictive indicator of, you know, your success. You need not track every persona and every data point and every event in your product. But what are those two, three things uh, you need to track? So, and I, and I, and I think I, we discussed this offline sometime that, uh, for example, things like, is your tool being used for a weekly meeting? I mean, there is no way to actually capture that automatically, but I think it's an important enough metric to, you know, track whether you are actually driving adoption or not, right? So it need not always be data, which is there on the platform. It can also be, uh, you know, sort of softer data points, which you need to start capturing. Otherwise the value is missing. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, as, as we said at the beginning, you know, user adoption is always immersed in a bigger context. So the bigger context, there's lots of data points outside of the tool, yeah. which we need to capture. So so it could be, you know, depending on the persona, depending on the business context and the routine, it could be anything around processes. It could be it could be, for example, before before we were using um a custom success platform, we were using Excel. Yeah. So one of the data points could be measure that you're no longer using Excel. (laughs) That's just a behavioral change, right? That you can measure, right? You can put something online and measure that. Um, It could be, okay, something around, uh, we've introduced a new process around Mm -hmm. the adoption. And this process is something you cannot measure within the tool, but you can measure it outside of the tool because part of this process could be, for example, a handover meeting between the customer success and the sales person, and which data of which is then going to be put into the customer success platform. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that handover meeting, you can measure. That's a sign of adoption because you know that part of the stipulations behind that handover meeting is the data is going to be put into the tool. 
you know yeah 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 perfect i think uh, very very valuable uh, mm-hmm. points sue and jason we'll take a few of these questions now i think we have 10 minutes left uh and uh, some very good questions let's see how many of these we could take mm-hmm. uh, uh there's one uh, right up front and i think it's more about the generic adoption piece but i think it's an important enough to address why is there resistance to you know adopting a new it's i think it's a good question because without understanding that it's very yes. difficult to drive the adoption so sure. why is there typically resistance you think you know this is one i think people um often misconstrue and they throw away the resistance throw around the resistance term very easily it's very easy to blame resistance on other people and when i encounter the assumptions around resistance i always ask a few clarifying questions and one is the um how do you know it's resistance at all and yeah. you know one of the things i i love a quote i forgot who said it was you know we judge ourselves by our intentions we judge others by their actions so if you are just observing that someone is not using a tool how do you know that's resistance it could be that there are barriers outside of their control to prevent them and pretty much every organization i've seen that struggles with low adoption there is something that prevents users from actually using the system um outside of their control even if they wanted to it could be the data is bad they don't have access rights um people upstream didn't put in the information that they need um things are misconfigured whatever it may be that usually um if people are not using the system don't assume it's resistance um and then i also go into the but if you are having low adoption and there are you've removed those barriers well then there's probably either misaligned incentives or you're not holding people accountable correctly yeah. and and then the final piece is that um how have you actually tried to overcome that resistance to explain what is required and provide the resources but you know one of the things that i think people often get wrong is when you're investing new technology you're trying to say hey we want people to perform their job differently and our performance expectations for you have now changed and yet we're going to take this approach of trying to sell you on what's in it for you and many users they don't hear what's in it for me they hear this is what i'm in for and you need to basically say okay your job's not changed and may you successful yesterday won't make you successful today here's what it takes going for you here's how we're going to help you and here's the time frame you have to get there and if you can't then we'll have to see is this really the right position for you anymore um and as a final thought there some systems if you're if it's a big enough change to someone's job because of the way the technology is um they may not want that job anymore and you probably wouldn't hire them for it today because it's such a massive change to what it was yesterday that sometimes you need to find other areas where they can excel in your organization right right absolutely there's a very specific question i don't think we can address uh, the the exact use case there but but what is the best method for customer adoption for a new product in a new market you know and then this gentleman's specific product is one uh, required by law it's a data privacy platform i'm guessing but leaving the specificity of the business case a new product in a new market i would assume uh, needs a fair amount of education so probably a little bit more onus on you know the education part of it because there is no comparison it's a new product yes. so you have to know yes. that why move from as is yeah no it's an interesting question i mean it it, it resonates because it's it's a bit like what jason was just talking about you know people are naturally resistant and there's always this what we call the well i call it the valley of of despair you know when you're trying to adopt mm-hmm. <laughs> adopt a new tool there's a trough and then you come up uh, gradually as you start to see the interest and it's the same thing with launching a new product which is the question the go to market right mm-hmm. so for the go to market you know um it it's like any go to market you have to do your better testing you have to really understand you know what are the, 
What is the market need? Is there a need there really for this product? Or is it just a fancy, nice to have tool that we're going to try and launch on the market? Um, so I would say, you know, get the, get the buy-in from the potential audience, do some testing with the hypothetical ideal customer profile, ideal user profile. Um, and, and just take it from there by testing what they say, testing, testing their reaction. I mean, I participated. I remember we were launching a, it was a customer success periphery tool using artificial intelligence. And I was one of the testers. Uh, and the company in question actually filmed us as we were navigating through the tool yeah. uh, and was filming our expressions, filming, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> whether we had a puzzled expression, whether we had a, a happy expression or whatever. So you can do a lot of things yeah. by observing, yeah. you know, user behavior before you actually make a, a big bang launch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I agree. I think also in the cases of a, a new product, a new area, um, making sure you have the right adoption methodology and structure is pretty key too. So first off, do you have someone who's going to own adoption? Um, do you have clear goals and milestones along the way? And I think this comes back to the, we don't know exactly what it needs to be yet. How do we start small and iterate very quickly? Um, and with organizations that I've seen do adoption well, putting in a lot of review and, and learning lessons learned checkpoints along the way to say, where do we need to pivot in our approach? Where are we struggling? What's coming in? And even if you're doing um, a pilot, you know, remember, pilot's supposed to be a pilot test. You can test your adoption methodology. You can ad- test your change management methodology before you roll it out to the full group. Um, right. And I think in a case where things are required by law, then you both have a compliance issue and an adoption issue and making sure you're very clear with your customer. Okay, here's where you are and here's how you can can really use the compliance piece as a as a driver. It becomes easier, actually. It becomes easier yeah. because you, there's no option. You have to do it. It's easier. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, one question is around, and this is a relevant one too, that, you know, user adoption, product adoption, feature adoption, time to first, action, value, et cetera, based on persona, there's too much stuff, you know, there's too much slicing, dicing, so it becomes very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you overcome that? Because those are still very relevant right mm-hmm. uh, my take on that is probably you know depending on the phase your product is in so if you're an early stage product then there is no escape you really have to do all of these otherwise you're not going to get better you're not going to be able to drive and really listen to the customer and change uh, but if it's a late stage product wherein you already know this is you know the ideal states are well known uh, then you can probably skittle it down into, you know, lesser personas and very specific, uh, mm-hmm. you know, use cases and stuff like that. So any thoughts around that? Uh, is it too much or is it still mandatory? We still need to do it. Uh, there, oh, go ahead, Sue. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I would say that it's in an ideal world, it's it's never too much because because I think if we can do that and and the way that technology is developing and advancing, I think that, you know, we should be building that into the tool itself, because if we can do that, that means that that even the role of customer success is going to be facilitated in the long run. Because I think today, a lot of time, the customer success is really like a a Band-Aid for what's not going on right in the product. So if we can get the product right from the start and put customer success inside, if you like, inside the product, not Intel inside, but it's customer success inside. Um, I think that's the right direction. So for me, if we if we can try and slice and dice that, because when we're doing our go-to-market study, 
we should know who our ideal personas, our ideal customers and ideal users. So we should build that into the products, right? Um, so if we can do it from the outset, that means that the roadmap for the product is going to be easier going forward. Agreed. If you've got a more established product, then in terms of updating it to accommodate for those different needs, it's, it's probably going to be harder, I think, um, because you, you're going to have to probably undo a lot of your product and the way it works and the workflows and everything, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I agree. So I, I, I agree with that too. And I think, um, you know, again, this is a great place where maturity approach works works very well that you don't have to have it all day one. It, you know, if you're a software vendor and you're trying to figure this out and you've got so much on your plate, I mean, that's the reality of it too, but you do have to plan for, we're going to get better as we scale because at some point, if we don't start to pay attention to these things, we will have real issues. So, so, you know, do the best that you can with what you can mature and iterate as you go. Right. Right. One last question and thought uh, before we wrap up, I think there was a question around, is there specific industries where it's, more difficult to predict. Uh, I don't know about industries, but you know, one question I have related to that for both of you, and we'll wrap up uh, after this, is uh, product may be the same, but you may have different customers use it for different reasons. So for example, if you have a performance management tool, uh, you're saying, I'm selling performance management, I'm not selling anything else, but one organization does performance management every quarter. Somebody mm -hmm. else does it, you know, yeah. once a year. Somebody does it every month. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is variance there and your adoption of the tool will be very different uh, mm -hmm. in all these three scenarios, right? So uh, is that relevant enough? How do you factor those sort of things in? Yeah, I, I think that that's an interesting question. I think that that's all part of the onboarding process. You know, if you... If you do have a performance management tool, then you can probably segment your customers based on what are, what are their needs around usage and frequency of usage, you know? Um, so that's something where you cannot just say, right, I consider that 50% adoption is yeah. a great measurement for everybody. You know, it's, it's something you have to personalize. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. We are uh, just at the top of the mark. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thanks, Sue and Jason, once again. Wonderful Great, conversation. Thank you. And uh, see you all soon. Okay. Take thank care. you very much, Prithri, again. Pleasure. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.